Hello and welcome to the History and Theory podcast, a student-led project that aims to make historical theory easy and accessible. We are James, Michael and Julia. In each episode, we talk to a different historian about their theoretical background, the historical practice and the significance of history within society. Make sure to visit our website, which you can find in the description. But for now, enjoy the episode. Today we're here with Sebastian Comrad, head of the Centre for Global History at the Freie Universität in Berlin. As a historian, he's published widely on Japanese history, coming from a background of post-colonial history. From there, he made the jump to global history and in 2013 published his book, Global History and Introduction. Today we'll be discussing two of Sebastian's texts, the first, Enlightenment in Global History, a historiographical critique, published in 2012 in the American Historical Review, and the second, Nothing is the Way It Should Be, Global Transformations of the Time Regime in the 19th Century, published in 2018 in Modern Intellectual History. As well as that, we'll be talking about what global history is and how it and history in general relate to the wider world and historical practice. Thanks very much for talking to us today. Mm -hmm. Um, Thank you for coming. In a lecture last year on global emotional history, you did a seven-point overview of what global history is, which I believe was about five minutes long. We're hoping (laughs) you'd be able to do that for us today. Uh, Sure, sure. Yeah, thanks. I mean, that particular event was um, sort of a cooperation between early modernists and, and, and modern historians. And uh, it was particularly, I mean, one of the questions on the table was to what extent uh, global history as an approach is actually compatible with other periods. Sometimes there's the assumption that global history is really something for the 19th and the 20th century. And to what extent can we actually bring this back into the past? And I, I suppose the, the main points that I made in that context were, so first of all, different from the assumption that you sometimes find global history for me, and I think for most practitioners, is is first and foremost a perspective. It is an approach that we can use to understand the past differently. So that means it's not necessarily an object of study, right? So so we can look at whatever we want to study through a global history lens, but global history doesn't necessarily mean that it's something that we can find out there, which in particular means, and this is already sort of point number two. I mean, one of the consequences of um, global history being a perspective is that it doesn't need to be planetary. Uh, Many people, when they hear global history, they're immediately reminded of some of the major synthesis works like Chris Bailey's or Jürgen Osterhammel's book on the 19th century that cover essentially the whole of uh, human history in the 19th century. Uh, but but that is just one you know very specific way of thinking about global history. Uh, mo- in most cases, global history is not about the totality of uh, what happened on the world. It's not about the the planet as such, but it's about very specific issues, questions, just like any other history book. Which also means, and that is almost point number three, that it doesn't have to be macro history. Many, I think. When they hear global, they immediately think that's very big, very large, but it doesn't have to be. So global really is more a lens than it is sort of a geographical you know, description. So it means that whatever we want to study, we, th- we study through the lens of uh, global history. That can be very small indeed. So, so the combination of micro-histories and a global history optic is very possible. In fact, it's, it's I think many of the studies that try to look at something very specific, very concrete, and add various layers, various scales to it, 
are among the most interesting and most fascinating examples of, of doing global history today. So the first consequence of um, global history being a perspective is that it's not planetary, it can be linked to something small. But the second, the second consequence is also, I really mean that it's one approach among many possible approaches. It's not you know, the sort of the, the culmination of 200 years of professionalization of, of the discipline of history. But it's one additional and I think very powerful uh, angle and optic. It's one approach, but clearly one among several others. And that also means that not every question requires a global history perspective. I would probably say that it's very difficult to find a topic where we cannot possibly apply a global history perspective, but in many cases it may not be the most powerful one, not the, not the most productive one. So there may be, you know, suppose we study, let's say, the, you know, the profession of, of lawyers in, in a German small town in the 19th century. Sure, we can also link it to global trends, but maybe that's not what's really interesting about these lawyers, right? So so it is possible to use it, but it's maybe not the most interesting or the most... Uh, it doesn't open up interesting questions necessarily. So in that respect, it's one approach, just like cultural history is an approach, just like gender history is a particular approach. And they can be, but don't have to be applied. Yes, I mean, as I started out saying, it's it's an approach that in some ways is particularly congenial to the modern period, the 19th and the 20th century in particular. But it's clearly also not limited to it. We can easily find great examples of global histories on, written on the early modern period. Also, there's a lot of discussion now on the possibility, about the possibility of the global Middle Ages, is that an interesting field? There are increasingly books written about global antiquity. So I, th I think in theory we can extend this perspective and this optic back all the way. In fact, I, I recently had uh, a colleague from archaeology uh, come, come to this office and he, he wanted to know what can we do in archaeology to turn our discipline into something more global. So I think in principle that's that's possible, even though the the you know the net gain may differ. That is, in an age, let's say the 20th century, where the globe obviously is integrated to a large extent, it's very easy to find examples where global history is really a powerful tool. The more we go back in time, the more it may, you know, the evidence for integration is much more patchy and may make it more difficult to find examples where large-scale processes really shape whatever we study on the ground. So even, let's say, in the age of, let's say, for example, the Mongol Empire, which is obviously a very powerful political entity, we need to look very carefully to what extent local developments were really shaped by that larger structure. So in other words, in principle, we can go back as far as we want. The Product the effectiveness of the approach may, however, you know, be may, however, vary depending on the period. Yeah. So that was a very, you know, very general but sort of first overview. But you said also that it wasn't superior to other approaches. Mm -hmm. But then, what does it? What what new things does it bring to the table? In fact, in some ways, you could say that the agenda, in fact, is to really change the discipline. So it comes with with the aim of really undoing some of the shortcomings that the discipline that are ingrained in the discipline since its inception in the 19th century. So there are many in some ways, but, but two, I think, in particular stand out. So one is the history of the discipline, not only history, but also this you know, can also be applied to political science, sociology, and others. The, the, the formative phase of these disciplines was in the second half of the 19th century, and they 
emerged very in very close relationship to the nation state, to the various institutions of the nation state, also to the politics of uh, nation building. So in some ways, history and nation are connected closer than they should be, closer than we actually would like them to be. They, In some ways, you could even say that the discipline of history for a while has been almost a handmaiden of, of nation building. And that is still visible, even if many historians today, obviously, don't write history in a nationalist spirit, even if they write history in a spirit that's critical of nationalism, they typically still operate within categories that, and, and use it by, by using categories that are tied to the institution of the nation state. So this is what, what some scholars call methodological nationalism. You can, you know, you can be an anti-nationalist, but you, you still typically operate with the idea that social change happens within nation states, that nation states that nations are actors on an historical stage, that societies are organized according to nation-state boundaries and so forth. So that's the first one. The second is, is Eurocentrism. Clearly, what most people would immediately think of when they hear global history is that, it's, it's, that the global connotes also moving beyond a Eurocentric framework. And again, history as it was developed in the 19th century was, was very closely linked to Eurocentric, a Eurocentric understanding of the world. One could even go as far as to say that also when it moved elsewhere, that it, when, when history as a modern discipline was adopted, let's say, in uh, Latin America, in Asia, it typically reproduced the Eurocentrism, uh, even though you know it was applied to places that didn't come out well in this Eurocentric uh, sort of worldview and cosmology. So that is the second major goal, I think, to move beyond Eurocentrism. And if I frame this in a sort of more abstract way, I would say that the internalism, that, that is my term that I would use to understand, to, to, to describe the way in which historians, but also political scientists, sociologists, typically describe social change as something that's generated within societies and develops essentially within uh, these containers, that that is something that needs to be radically challenged, and global history is one way to challenge that. I see a similar move now in many disciplines. So there are similar debates, obviously, in political science, uh, sociology, anthropology as well. Uh, but even in disciplines where this debate has much more difficulty of taking hold, uh, like, for example, art history or law. But the challenge, which is how can we think about and rethink the social sciences and humanities in an age of globalization, is something that clearly goes beyond history. Because some might say that sort of the battle to fight against the nation as the the normal unit of measurement mm -hmm. has sort of already been won. Has it? Well, that's why I'm asking you. You still think that this is a worthy debate to be well? To be I, having? I think we we have it, it we have it on three levels. So one is um, you know where has it been won? I, I think you're right in some parts of the academy. In particular, also, if you want you know if you want to be if you want to come across as someone who's original and innovative, if you want to get a large research grant, if you don't put the word global somewhere, you, you will not get the money. So in that, in that respect, some, some many of my colleagues, I think they have the feeling that the global is already ubiquitous and difficult to avoid and maybe has gone too far. But then if you look at the, and we're still in the academy, if you look at the larger, if you look at the institutional structure of universities, then it's very difficult. I mean, how many, for example, take this country, Germany, how many chairs with a denomination in global history do we have? Maybe two, I'd say maybe, probably zero in many countries uh, around the world. So institutionally speaking, we still have, you know, it's very difficult. For example, if you say 
we have a very vibrant uh, global history master program. If we say the next professorship that we, you know, that we advertise should be in that field, then the idea is well, but you know, how, what should we give up? And there is no, it, there's no willingness by anyone to give up, you know, even the third chair in medieval history. Um, for another chair in global history. So, so I think institutionally speaking, we're still very much at the beginning. This is clearly the case for any continental European country, all European countries. It's also still true for, for the Anglophone world, where uh, even there was a recent very interesting statistical survey about universities in the United States that also made this similar case. Di a little different, clearly, from the European setting, but also with the message that most historians in the United States work on the United States. And then there's a strong component that works on Europe, but global perspectives are very rare still. The third level is uh, a broader public, and I think that, you know the broader public still buys books on very conventional topics. Uh, the, you know the, the the 1919 revolution in Germany, the uh, the various biographies of all the major figures um, of the Nazi period. That's what sells. Um, the, one of the Major historians, um, Chris Clark, for example, a great historian. I think I appreciate his work very much, but his topics are, you know, they sell in the hundreds or thousands. The Iron Kingdom, for example, history of Prussia. So that's very well done. That's not, that's not the point here, but, but I'm talking about the reception um, in a broader public. And there, I think global history is still a fringe market. So the short answer is no. I don't think <laughs> the battle has been won. So we're going to come to this later, but we'll come mm. to it now as it's come up. So there is obviously in European and a social slash cultural slash political relevance to the approach of global history. Um, and at least from my perspective, it has been making history more popular if you think about stuff like big histories and mm. world histories. Mm. So do you think that global history is making popular histories more ubiquitous? Yeah, that's actually a good question. I'm not sure. So, so this this um, this big history project, which is suppo supported by Bill Gates and also funded lavishly by uh, the Gates Foundation, you, you could say that's that's an indicator of you, you know things are really changing. But, but then again, I, I don't see big history really arriving anywhere, and I'm actually not supporting it directly either. So. Speaking, you know, if we think about universities, but also school curricula, I don't see it really happening yet. And then second, if I think about, I mean, are there books that have really sold in the six-digit, seven-digit figures? There was a recent book by Peter Frankopan on the Silk Road, which I think has turned into sort of a bestseller. And obviously, if we, if we think back to, uh, let's say, for example, Jared Diamond's book, that was a major, uh, Guns, Germs and Steel, that was a major uh, seller. But other than that, I don't... Would you call that a global history? In a way, it is a global history. Absolutely, yeah, right, yeah. I mean, maybe not exactly the one that, that I would write, but it is yeah. it is a global history of sorts, sort of a sort of a big history framework. Uh, yeah. Yes. And why don't you support big histories? No, I mean, I I don't. So I. Yeah, maybe that's too. No, no, it's aggressive. a good question. No, no. I, I um, so in principle, I think that uh, these various genres have their own right of existence. So so there is a demand, and I think it's also important to have a very long durée, long term perspective, and it's just as important to have in depth studies of something very specific. the The only problem with the, you know, of course, the question is the long durée. How long does it need to be? And sure, in some ways, the big history framework, which assumes that 
um, we need to look at history from the Big Bang onwards, including the emergence of the universe and the emergence of the galaxies and so forth. I, I see the appeal. At the same time, I think for 99% of the questions that I'm asking myself, 99% of the questions that I think most of our students care for are willing to engage with, uh, most of the questions that our, that our societies battle with, all of these questions, I think, cannot really be solved with that kind of perspective. So, yes, we need a long-term view, and that can go back several centuries and I think that is very important and remains important in fact I, I next term I will give a lecture on world history the past 1000 years so I think it's worth thinking about that but big history takes it into a, a you know t t to an extreme that I think is no longer helpful bracket including the politics of it Right, because uh, the intentions uh, of big history, the idea is that it moves us into a field where we can all look at the history of the universe, the globe, and so forth from, as some of its practitioners say, a cosmic perspective. As if, looked at from that distance, all the petty differences between people, countries, cultures, and so forth would disappear. I think that's not the direction that the discipline should go. I think it's rather the multiplicity of perspectives, sort of a chorus of different voices from different places, that will be the future of global history. So not one entirely objective version that will eliminate conflict and wars, but rather a multiplicity of, uh, of perspectives that are in dialogue and, 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 and may not agree on everything. Do you think that will become sort of a new approach, if you can even sort of paint these boundaries in between them? I, I'm not sure whether I respond correctly to your question, but my, my response now would be to say, um, so far global history to a large extent has been a G7, and maybe an Anglophone even project, a G7 or OECD project, but it hasn't really arrived in many places in the global south. That is, it's been a project that has, been, that has talked about the world, but has not really involved scholars from the world. So I think the next step really would be to facilitate and, and enable uh, this kind of conversation more. So many global historians are happy to talk about the Senegal and Vietnam and Colombia, but they're really hesitant to actually engage with scholars from these places or literature, historiography from these places. But that, that I think, is the new frontier. It's not to create something that's impeccable, cannot be criticized, and looks the same everywhere. Jeremy Edelman uh, wrote that global history is sort of an outcome of the political culture of the 90s, mm. these concepts of borderlessness and globalization. Now there's sort of an argument in the political sphere that the world is be becoming more tribalist. Mm. Would you say that global history therefore isn't relevant anymore in terms of politics? Or would you, could you maybe say that it's maybe naive and doesn't see the world exactly as it is? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this this piece by by Edelman is a provocative piece. It's a, I think it's a very well written piece, and it's a very timely piece as well. Um, I nevertheless believe that it's ultimately faulted on on two counts. So so one is, yes, in a way you could say that clearly. I mean, global history as a movement in the discipline would not have occurred without globalization. So in that respect, it is a child of the '90s and also the early 2000s. However, this whole idea of, um, you know, the borderless world and, and the, the, the happy meeting of different people and cultures, that was not necessarily, I think, the reality of most 
histories written in a global history vein. That is, many historians in that field, they were not so much about, they were not concerned primarily with celebrating the happy meeting of diversities. I mean, there are these examples, but I think for many it was also about, global history was one of the ways in which scholars could think about and critically comment on the process of globalization. That is, not just simply embrace it, but also talk about the the costs, the various conflicts. And therefore, I think he captures part of the scene, but not all of it. In fact, so most of the global historians whose work I appreciate uh, particularly, they are really writing their global histories in a very critical vein, often in a Marxist you know, spirit. And, and therefore, I think the idea that global history is a celebratory discipline doesn't really capture it. The second question is, does this emergence of new forms of populism, tribalism, you called it, America firstism is, is one of the terms that Edelman uses. Does that mean we no longer need global history? I think it's just the reverse. How can we explain the simultaneous emergence of these populisms around the world if we frame it in sort of a nation, one nation first you know, kind of perspective? We can't, I think. It's clear, it's clear that many of these, of, of these movements are just the... I mean, they are definitely a response to, if not simply an effect of, uh, you know, the way in which globalization has happened. So they, they cannot be understood within a one-country framework. And, and therefore, in some ways, we could say that on the surface of it, it looks as if the national perspective is back, but we cannot understand it outside of a framework that is global. Just as we, in the 19th century, yeah, we've learned that it is impossible to understand the emergence of nation-states as long as we just look into the history of one nation state, we actually need to understand it also as a global process. And very similarly, I think also today, that is the case. So, so in some ways, I would say these movements, rather than saying they spell the end of global history, I mean, Edelman's piece in some parts almost reads like an obituary, uh, which he himself clearly doesn't intend. I mean, that's at least what he, uh, you know, what he said uh, when we talked about his piece. But um, so rather than being the, the spelling the end of, of global history, I'd say this phenomenon shows that we need global history more than ever. So if we need global history more than ever, who do you look to for support? So, I mean, on the one side, there's this national regression to tribalism, and on the other, as you said, there's a problem with relying on corporations. Um, so do you turn to supranational, supranational institutions like the European Union or other actors? I think you put to a very different, difficult question. I mean, the the question is difficult also because. So I would tend to think of uh, institutions and then also social, you know, social movements as the two agencies really. But, but, but my I think in the the larger institutions would also be addressees for this kind of claim, even though the difficulty I think is that many of these institutions, be it. Um, you know, global institutions are also something like the European Union. For a long time, I, I would have been, I was critical of many of them for the role they played in the way in which they managed and organized essentially global integration, right? The, the way in which the, the World Bank, uh, the IMF, also the European Union, for example, uh, reacted to the financial crisis. So, so in principle, I think many of us were critical of these institutions and wanted to change them in a particular way. Now, 
the these these very same institutions that we thought were the object of our critique are now it seems like the the last bulwark against this new kind of tribalism. So that's the very difficult sort of double bind within I think which many scholars or also activists find themselves. So you know against the against Trump and Orban and Brexit and so forth. It seems like the EU needs strengthening. But then again, one doesn't want to go back to the kind of European Union that bailed out the big corporations in the financial crisis. So, so that is really a huge difficulty. Yeah, I, I, I would still, nevertheless, think that these institutions are the the most effective place to go. Ultimately, obviously, these institutions will not change if there's no pressure groups, and pressure groups can come from all places. They clearly come from, you know, the side of the, of the large corporations, but they should also come from from social movements. But I think the ad- main addressee would be, the, for me, these institutions. So we'd like to move into the actual articles themselves and talk a little bit about some of the things, mm-hmm. some of the theories that come up in them. Mm-hmm. So in Nothing is the Way It Should Be, which focuses on modernization in Japan. This concept of modernity is very, very intrinsic to the, to the article. Um, and it implies several processes that happen within societies like centralization, technological advancement, industrialization, professionalization. And it's one of the biggest analytical categories that historians have to deal with. And in the text on the Enlightenment, you distance yourself from traditional conceptions of modernity, but you don't specifically place how you define the term or how you understand it and how you implement it. So how do you understand and use modernity? Hmm. And how has global history developed the concept from how other approaches used it? All right. How much time do we have for modernity here? <laughs> no, this is this is obviously a, 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 a tough one, but at the same time, it's maybe a good example for the way in which this, the global turn reinvigorates the debate about some of these terms. Now, clearly, mo- modernity slash modernization. For a long time, historians used modernization primarily, right? So the, the the shift from modernization to modernity already is indicative of a of a certain change. Modernization essentially was the term that modernization theorists used. It implied the idea that there was a sort of a almost linear development that uh, ultimately every society would uh, take. While modernity much more is, is, is concerned much more and focuses on, highlights the ambivalences. The, the Modernity is much more a state and not just simply a stage in temporal process, right? So, so that already, I think. So, so when we look at the hegemony of these words, modernization was hegemonic in the fifties, sixties, seventies. The term modernity begins its ascendancy probably in the nineteen eighties and then nineties. So that already begins, you know, shows, shows I think a shift in the way in which the term is understood. Modernity, as understood, or modernization, as understood by modernization theory, implying a set of ingredients that um, every modern society will develop. That has been criticized uh, for a long time, and it's also come under additional criticism in the context of uh, global history writing. It is clear, for example, that something like secularization may be an adequate description of some societies in Western Europe in the 19th century, but the term already fails in the United States. It clearly does not describe appropriately um, societies outside of the West, quote-unquote. So that's just one example from many. So so there are sort of theoretical and also empirical, uh, good good empirical reasons not to embrace modernization theory. And therefore, in this article, I use modernity primarily as a term that actors use. 
In other words, not as an analytical category that has a clear definition, but rather as something that the actors use, and they use it in different ways, and to actually then follow the way these actors uh, use the term. There's this very interesting article by Frederick Cooper that makes a very powerful claim uh, for this kind of perspective. Different from Cooper, maybe, however, um, I think it's interesting. I mean, first of all, it's, it's important to notice that the, once, we, once we focus on the actors, it's less a category that has a you know, clear definition and content, but rather it's a category that's used and employed to stake out claims. It's a claims-making device. It's, and therefore, it's, it's every time someone mentions modern, it, it, is, it is political because it, wants, it makes a claim for a particular development, for a particular reform, for a particular change. So to follow the actors and their way they employ it is also a way of understanding how they try to you know, formulate their political agendas. And that, I think, is a very powerful uh, tool. Uh, by When I say agenda, this means, first of all, to differentiate themselves from the past, usually. right? Most moderns feel that they are different from earlier centuries and earlier generations. Second, also, maybe from other countries. They say, we are more modern than others. And that easily can blend into claims of superiority, maybe even claims of uh, imperial hierarchy. Third, however, many social actors also use the term modern modernization to stake out social claims. That is, they act as if they were the educators of the nation, for example. It really has a, cl a strong class, clearly also strong uh, gender uh, dimension. So so all of these strategies go into this claims-making device of, of modernity. Now, I think what's particularly interesting, however, even if we stay with this, with the historical actors themselves, is that you know, we can say, let's get rid of modernization theory and instead use what the actors themselves say. But what's interesting is that many of these actors are themselves, in a way, modernization theorists of sorts, right? So if we look at the 19th century, many of these actors, when they talk about what modernization or what reform should be about, you know, in be it Peru or Tokyo, they will transport particular assumptions of what modern modernity is, what modernization is. And therefore, in their heads, they have sort of theories of modernization themselves. And that's, I think, important to recognize. We cannot, therefore, discard the term altogether. Uh, it is still, I think, a, a helpful device. And what's particularly interesting, in particular for this transitional period in the 19th and early 20th century, is that for many of these activists, reformers, and so forth, they're very reflective about this issue. There, there is a certain tension between two ways of thinking about it. So one is that they do think about modernization as something that develops gradually, that is a stage, and some countries are further ahead, uh, some some are still behind, and they use this behindness, you know, as a rhetorical device to actually affect change in their countries. At the same time, there's also the awareness that, you know, modernity is not something that some countries have and some others don't, but it's also something that engulfs all of them. So, on the one hand, they see it as developmentalist, as staged. At the same time, they, many of them see it actually as a state in which they all find themselves in, whether they want to or not, that, that encompasses them, that they are part of um, in different ways, in, in ways in which uh, it may be uneven, this kind of modernity may be uneven, but it's not something that one can avoid or stand outside of. So, so therefore, and, and this awareness that they actually have entered a moment of, of modernity, I think that's very powerful, and that's something that we need to, to analyse as well. That leads quite nicely into so the concept of the Enlightenment, which is the second article that we were talking about. Um, most people understand it as a set of ideals, or even as a periodization 
Um, but you develop it into a sort of a spectrum of political opinion, as you were talking about with modernity, a label that people use to give their opinions force, essentially. And it's a very fluid term, and it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people at different times. But does this not broaden the terminology so much that it mm. becomes not useless to an extent, but not as useful as when it has a more specific meaning? Mm. That's, a, that's a very good question. That's a very difficult question. That's one of the conundrums, I think, with which probably all historians, but maybe global historians in particular, uh, have to grapple. So, right, I mean, when I wrote this article, I have to say I wrote this as, a, as someone who... I wasn't trained in Enlightenment studies. I was not. I had. It was not the field in which I was educated. It's. I was. I did. I came to this topic and problematic, sort of as an outsider, and maybe that made it easier to write this article, for example. In other words, to um, not assume an essence, a substance of what Enlightenment actually is, because I, I, I didn't have any stakes in it. I was, of course, also a little nervous about what the reception among Enlightenment scholars proper would be. Um, so, for example, when I sent the article to the journal, to the American Historical Review, I really braced myself for a, a severe trashing by historians of the Enlightenment who had worked on the, let's say, the Enlightenment in Torino all their life. It was interesting to see that that was not the case, actually. So, so many of the reports that came back, they actually... There were exceptions, but the, but most of them actually pushed me more in the direction in which I wanted to go, uh, rather than actually stepping on the brake. So so that was interesting, and I also my impression is, I mean, since then I've been invited to all kinds of conferences on the Enlightenment. Uh, it seems like it is a perspective that that at least these Enlightenment historians find useful to think with and maybe grapple with. I think the 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 point of departure, and this is true for the term Enlightenment as it is for other concepts, is this. As, as long as we assume that the standard historiography, which is derived from a very particular, typically Western European experience, once we assume that this historiography defines the topic, then the histories of the rest of the world are histories of lack, right? There is always something lacking in comparison to that definition. So if we want to be open to broadening the concepts, we need to be flexible, at least to some extent, because otherwise it'll always be, well, it's not quite European Enlightenment. It's not quite European fascism. I remember even, I mean, this is not, it's a Eurocentric perspective that you can also find from, you know, in the writings of scholars elsewhere. I, there's a very powerful example, um, the, the, the Japanese historian Maruyama Masao, who wrote a very powerful article on fascism. He said, you know, there's European fascism, but what we did in Japan is not the real thing. Look, even the brutality of our leaders wasn't as severe and brutal and rigid as these Europeans. We didn't, we weren't able to do this on the same scale. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's an, it's an incredible article. He's obviously writing from a sort of a left perspective, very critical of fascism, but essentially saying we didn't even get fascism right. Now, this kind of perspective, that is looking at a concept, industrialization, modernity, enlightenment, fascism, by defining it when looking at Europe and then finding deviations elsewhere, I think is ultimately marred, right? It's, it's, it's problematic. It isn't, doesn't really help us to create a broader conversation. The broader conversation needs to start, therefore, with a, sort of a very flexible concept, with an open mind. And maybe, for example, you know, if we use the term, the concept of fascism, maybe it's not crucial for a definition of fascism 
that it is a revolution from below. It's driven by the energies, let's say, you know, of populist leaders and, and the masses. Maybe it can also be engineered from above. And once we accept that, then the picture becomes much larger. The same is true for the Enlightenment. Um, once we accept that for some activists, for example, in, in Asia, uh, the Enlightenment implied that their countries should adopt Christianity. That's clearly something that, you know, many of the French scholars didn't have in mind. They wanted to get rid of uh, the role of religion in, in the public sphere. Um, in other words, once we allow that, then the term becomes much more capacious. Of course, you're completely right to say, doesn't or to ask, you know, doesn't that make it less clearly defined? And maybe if the boundaries are too fuzzy, then the term loses its analytical potential completely. And that, I think, is also true. So, so we need to, in some ways... So there are limits. There are, there are limits, yeah, yeah. And there's no, there, I don't think there's a regulation or a law or anything that can that can police the way in which we need to redraw these boundaries. Once we go beyond, the, the, the term loses its, all of its potential. And then we will end up without any kind of analytical concept, right? We will go down the path that Cooper goes down with modernity for every single concept. We'll say, we'll just look at the way in which contemporaries perceived fascism, or we'll just treat as empire whenever contemporaries called it an empire, right? I mean, that is, of course, limited. I mean, what, what does it mean? What does it mean if, for example, the Portuguese, Salazar, in the 1930s say, our possessions in Angola, uh, um, Mozambique, and so forth are not an empire. They're part of Portugal. It's not an empire. Does it mean it is not an empire? I think the analytical category of empire is still powerful. We need to cling to it. These are ex exactly the kinds of tensions. So, so reminds me of when people call for members of the British Tory Party fascists. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Obviously, you can't take it seriously that that's mm -hmm. what they, they they don't mean fascists. Mm -hmm. And even George Orwell back in the thirties and forties was complaining about people using the term much much too broadly. Yeah, using the term broadly, or sometimes I mean, th there are obviously terms that we apply retrospectively. So even if someone you know in the Middle Ages didn't know the term feudal, we may still want to use it. If the term liberalism wasn't around, we may still want to use it for a, a particular social formation. So, so we need analytical categories, and we 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 could relativize all of them by turning them into actors' categories only. So there needs to be sort of a balance between let's open up the category because otherwise they will remain euro-centered, uh, and that would be problematic uh, and not helpful. But at the same time, if we just completely abandon them, if we just completely sort of, um, you know, give up on, on, on the idea of uh, the possibility of an analytical category that, that has explanatory potential beyond individual cases, then we also need to definitely cling to them. So before we get to the list, this last question, um, you mentioned that modernization theory was sort of a 30s, 40s, 50s term and modernity came into proper use in the 70s and 80s. Modernization theory was something, obviously, that was very, very related to the Cold War and was used as a political tool mm. by the mm. West, predominantly. Why do you think there was this shift, sort of, in the 60s and 70s from modernization to modernity as a sort of a different term in its own right? So I think the the, um, the the term modernity, of course, comes up earlier. Also, it's, it's, it's a term that's, for example, used when talking about the Janus character of modernity that is it brings about social emancipation and liberation and at the same time it produces totalitarian states for example right and so so let's say in, in Horkheimer Adorno we uh, 
this kind of discussion is indicative already of a, of a debate about modernity. But as, as a concept that's used widely, and I mean by academics in, in particular, social scientists and so forth, I'd say the heyday of modernization theory was really the 60s and then also the 70s and 80s, while the term modernity really only, well, I mean, it, it, is, it is only in the 80s that I think it becomes as powerful as modernization had been in the 60s. And in that respect, I think you're right to say and point out that modernization theory was linked to the Cold War. It, it is sort of the framework of the Cold War. And once the Cold War begins to gradually dissolve, then it's easier to talk about the advantages and disadvantages of modernity in a sort of more general sense. Yeah, I think it's linked to that. And clearly, then the term globalization comes along. Globalization has a very interesting relationship with modernity, modernization, so, or there is at least also the possibility, if not danger, that globalization just replaces modernization. So modernization indicated that we moved from a traditional society to a more modern one, while globalization sometimes is used as we're simply moving from a less connected to a more connected one in a very similar way. That, I think, would be under a complex. It would not... Uh, so the earlier reading was that societies become modern and then they begin to develop international contexts and, and begin to sort of globalize. While increasingly the question I think would be, does the very understanding of what is modern imply some kind of global connectivity? That that I think is, is, is a discussion that's ongoing. For example, if we talk about this discussion on early modernities, it's, clearly, it's clear that that is one of the ingredients. Early modernity, the way in which scholars now understand it, typically implies Columbus and the voyages of Zheng Ho, the connections between Manila, Acapulco, and Beijing. It implies connectivity. So the discussion about the global has changed the way in which the term modern has been understood. So just moving back to the articles again specifically, um, there's a direct link between modernity and time in the... Um, the Nothing is the Way It Should Be article. And this connection is also true in historiography, so every approach has its own conception or conceptions of time. So that's how do you, or how does global history in general, if you can speak for it as a movement, perceive time, and how does this differ from other theories, would you say? That's a huge field. I'll try to give a couple of brief comments here. So one is, um, clearly, I mean, that's a very standard definition. I mean, some for some scholars... The idea of modernity is essentially about a sense of time. So if you follow Kozelek and his work, for example, but also also uh, someone like the philosopher Peter, I think, Osborne, uh, his understanding of modernity, that is essentially a, a concept of time and a change in the sense of temporality that captures the essence of what the modern is about. So... So, so, so the transition into a sense and notion, a regime of time that includes qualitative change, the sense of development, time sort of as a trajectory, as an arrow that points it to the future, all of that is frequently seen as the essentially the cultural core and essence of, of modernity. And in some ways, that is also the way in which I used it in that, in that particular article. Now, in a broader sense, um, of course, the, the question... So, once we open up the discussion in sort of reaction to the global turn, we will also have to ask to what extent is our, t our temporal regimes, even historicity, is it, to what extent are they also 
the product of, of, of global history. So, for example, is uh, there has been a, a very interesting and large debate about, um, on the one hand, periodization. Can we periodize history in the same way everywhere? Now, if you look around the world, you will find medieval ages in pretty much every country. But that, of course, has been was an imposition in some ways or an adaptation of a particular framework that had been supplied by Europe. More broadly speaking, is something like a sense of history even something that we can find everywhere? And some scholars, uh, for example, Vinay Lal in, uh, at UCLA, he has written powerfully against that notion, has claimed that, for example, in South Asia, this idea of historicity doesn't exist. He's building his argument on people like Ashish Nandi and even the work of Gandhi, essentially claiming that South Asian civilization is characterized by a non-acceptance of this idea of history as such. So, so even the question to what extent this, you know, what we what we think as a fundamental element of essentially human, many of us, we is is a wrong term here, but uh, you know, if you're trained in a European university, then you tend to think that the idea of historicity is something that's essentially human. Period. Um, that idea has also been challenged. Now, this is an on ongoing discussion, um, but 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 that is sort of I think the you know the, the the broad framework within which these discussions have to take place. Getting a little bit more practical, uh -huh. um, we, we'd like to so we're students ourselves, and we'd like to know how students in Europe could practically apply this approach in their work, this approach in their work. So the approach of global history. How can they use analytical categories in a global history sense? Um, such as modernization or temporality, and this obviously has to take into account page limits and the stylistic and structural boundaries that any degree puts on a historian. Well, I mean, the discussion that we've had now was uh, a discussion that was in some ways very abstract, very mm. theoretical. These are, these are questions that I think any historian at any age that includes myself are grappling with but are not solving that we cannot simply you know deal with them or they they are more sort of the background they are part of the sort of larger context within which we think and I think that the the aim the goal needs to be at whatever stage of of a historian's career needs to be to look at a particular project of course, framed or you know situated in this larger debate, but then looking at something that's very concrete and empirical. So, for example, I don't know. We talked about, for example, enlightenment or fascism as concepts. Yeah, we can. Why not just you know look at the way in which in Argentina there's a discussion about is has was Argentina also fascist? You know, we can we can say we can look at, for example, how how did social actors in Argentina look at Italy or Germany and write about it? Did and you, did they use the term fascism in what ways? I mean, that would be a very concrete study. Um, and you would call that global. And that is global, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, because because why is it global? Not because we link two places, not because one of the places is maybe a non-Western place, which even can be debated in the in the case of Argentina, but but it's global because the 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 causality, that is, why are these movements emerging, I think needs to be situated sort of in a, you know, in, in in a global context. That is, it's it's this particular moment of the interwar period, the economic crisis, various ways in which different ideologies interact globally. It's it's not the connection of two places. We can even stay in one place. We can stay essentially in Buenos Aires and just look at what people actually said. But that can be a global history analysis. A, a student recently wrote uh, an interesting 
um, MA thesis on a just essentially one journal published in Mexico City in the interwar period, looking at the way in which these actors were, they, they tried to effectuate social reform, political reform in Mexico, but they talked about all these other cases, Morocco, China, essentially implying that revolutionary movements, public protest, uh, anti-colonial activity and so forth, elsewhere were fighting the same kind of struggle, the same kind of fight as they were doing in Mexico. So this student focused on Mexico City, just one place. He focused on one journal, a few editions. But through that journal, he was able to see how the, let's call it the global awareness that these social actors held, helped them frame their own struggle and activity in a way in which it was a response to a global challenge. That, I think, is a beautiful example of something that's very concrete, very feasible, uh, can be done in a few months, uh, half a year, places a very concrete constellation in a global context um, and um, can be done as an MA thesis. So I have a question uh, regarding specifically this. I think also why we asked this question was because many students or a criticism many students hear of their work is when they drop these uh, these big keywords like modernity, like temporality, mm. like fascism, all of which we talked about, they are often faced with the criticism by the person grading them, well, why didn't you define it? So mm. how, how do you use mm -hmm. this word? And the way students are often taught is to, is to look for a clear-cut definition of the word and mm. then just say, mm -hmm. well, okay, this is how I'm going to use the word freedom, for example. So this is how I understand freedom mm -hmm. in the context mm -hmm. of this work, just simply because I write about the 16th century, for mm -hmm. example, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. my actors understand mm -hmm. freedom in that way. But students often refer, nevertheless, to encyclopedias that tell them how to do that. Mm -hmm. Would you mm -hmm. omit that step, given what you just said, given this bigger spectrum that you, um, that you pointed out? I, I think it may be helpful to, for example, in the, introdu in the introduction, briefly say something about how in the literature, in historiography, a particular term has usually been used. Let's take the example of the Enlightenment. Yes, most scholars have, you know, they, they talk about the Enlightenment. They use the, the the to indicate that it's a, a definite project, movement. And then they imply that it has these and these ingredients. Say something like, this is the way it's usually been discussed but as i'm moving the discussion from you know utrecht or torino or halle now to let's say saigon i want to be open to the way in which the actors actually use it in other words you you make a reference you make a gesture to the way in, in which it's usually been discussed but then you indicate that for this kind of question you need to be more open something like that it can be very short that can be a paragraph or two i think that indicates you're aware when you know we are aware of the way in which usually historians are using it, but at the same time we want to be open. Something like that, I think, would would work well. Thank you very mm. much for talking to us, Sebastian mm -hmm. Gomez. Thank you. Likewise. Thanks a lot.